Welcome to Phone a Friend. Well, I've certainly spoken about her enough, and now she's actually here, Brianna Joy Gray. Brianna is the host of the popular politics podcast and YouTube channel, Bad Faith, and co-host of The Hills Rising. Prior to this, she was the national press secretary for the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign, was senior politics editor at The Intercept, and has written for The Guardian, Rolling Stone, New York Magazine, and for our friends over at Current Affairs Magazine. She has a BA and a law degree from Harvard University, and I personally believe her to be one of the most uncompromising intellectuals and searing interrogators in the news media. Now, we cover a lot of ground in a very short period of time, so buckle up and get ready to meet the inimitable Brianna Joy Gray. You're here, Brianna Joy Gray. <laughs> I've said your name so many times on the podcast that people are probably like, what is your obsession? But you are here. I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show today. No, it really is my pleasure. I haven't been doing as many uh, other podcast interviews as I used to in the past, and I, I sort of miss it. So this is a welcome opportunity for me. All right. Well, let's dig right into it. So one of the things with our audience uh, that I've referenced over and over, which is, is probably why there's a lot of unfuckers rolling their eyes here, is your debate with Crystal and Kyle. I thought that that was one of the most productive and insightful debates on the left that I've heard in a very long time. And um, it's interesting to me that since since that time, Crystal has gone on the record to say that she cannot in good conscience tell voters to vote for Biden because of his complicity in the genocide in Gaza. And so that was her red line. And I think everybody has kind of their own. Um, but there were two aspects to your positions in the debate that really resonated with me and made me kind of recalibrate my own thoughts on the matter. And one is something that you've been writing about for a long time, and that's the whole concept of vote blue no matter who. The second is something that cuts a little bit deeper and I think gets into voter psychology and we'll tease that out over time. But I wanted to start by reading something that you wrote for Current Affairs back in 2020. You said, quote, this is a problem inherent to vote blue no matter who. It can lead us to substitute pragmatic or normative arguments for moral ones. And in doing so, demote the substantive ethical considerations that should be driving our decision making. It blurs the line between accepting a bad outcome and validating an unacceptable one, making bad outcomes more likely to come to pass, end quote. So we're four years on, and I imagine that you have some receipts for this sentiment. And <laughs> I'm wondering, in your mind, what are some of the bad policy and position outcomes that have been tacitly validated in the Biden years so far? I mean, we're looking down the barrel of a big one, which is this draconian um, border policy that 
Democrats are sort of trying to run on in this perverse way, or at least run on the idea that they tried to give Republicans everything they've ever asked for on the border in order to get their buy-in on this uh, Ukraine and Israel funding package and Taiwan funding package. And yet Republicans were are being the attempt at least is to show that they were negotiating in bad faith when they said that they would be willing to vote for the the foreign aid package if they were given everything they wanted uh, on the border. Um, and so you have this really perverse inversion where four years ago, a significant part of the rationale as to why we needed to all vote blue no matter who and oust Trump was his border policy, was kids in cages, was family separation. And now Democrats are arguing that, but for Republicans, that they would be continuing so many of the Trump era policies, as as, as uh, Joe Biden, by the way, has been continuing so many of these Trump era policies. They would continue and exacerbate uh, the status quo that we have currently. And that Republicans are, are bizarrely the ones that are obstructing that for their own reasons, not for ethical reasons. But the, the, the logger jam we're in right now, the log jam we're in right now is actually a good thing, but not because of Democrats. So, I mean, how do we get there? How do we get into a place where we have to elect Joe Biden to stop Trump and to do so to win? Joe Biden has to do the things Trump ostensibly would have done in, in, instead. I can't think of a better example than that. But yeah. of course, we, we've seen, in addition to that, the progressives as they have come out early in their endorsement of Joe Biden, whether it's someone like Bernie Sanders, who I, if I recall correctly, endorsed Joe Biden, if not the day he announced his reelection campaign, but, the, but that week, if not the day, or people like AOC, who were sort of more pushed into these endorsements uh, in that interview that she did on Pod Save America. Regardless of the timing of it, there has been not a peep from anyone in Congress, any of the progressives, except for, I would say, Rashida Tlaib, mm -hmm. about the possibility of entertaining any other primary candidate. And Rashida Tlaib's caveat is largely because she is a part of this uh, movement not to vote for Joe Biden in the primary, which is something, although that's a very different thing than saying you're not going to vote for him in the general election. Right. And in the course of making the argument as to why you should vote for Joe Biden, people like AOC have characterized him as not just passable or better than Trump, but the most effective president of our lifetime, whitewashing the extent to which he threw the $15 minimum wage, hardly a far left um, policy under the bus, uh, the extent to which he has thrown student debt cancellation under the bus and is bragging about canceling debt for 100,000 Americans here and there when the initial plan, the initial promise was to cancel 44 million debtors, debt, some, some portion of the debt of 44 million student debtors, and on and on and on and on. So it's not just saying, honestly, okay, I think this guy is better than Trump. People can have their debates about that. But even though I know he's disappointed us, you got to vote for him. They are, in fact, I would say sanitizing his record and misrepresenting his record in the effort to get people to vote for him. So we've, we've gotten a lot of feedback from what I would consider to be genuine progressives who express a palpable fear over a second Trump term. Um, and I would think that, you know, even some dyed in the wool progressives uh, understand that the power that the executive holds over 
over certain outcomes, like the ability to make life demonstrably more difficult for certain segments of the population. And I'm thinking, you know, specifically of the trans community, the LGBTQ community. Um, and I wanted to throw out a concept to you that is, I think it's kind of helped center my thoughts on the matter a little bit. And I was hoping that we could tease it out a little bit. And it's, it's a perspective that was given to me by Jay Tomlinson from the Best of the Left podcast, who said that we might have a more parliamentary system than we even appreciate because of the two-party duopoly. Because, I, And I think the example that best explains it is the um, probably the renegade right wing of the Republican House and how they've been able to pull the legislative agenda even further to the right, um, with many suggesting that maybe the squad should have employed similar ta tactics over the last several years. But it does speak to the idea of the breadth of the house in particular means that even small blocks of power can have an outsized impact on policy. So this idea combined with the institutional and financial barriers to actually getting authentic third party movements off the ground kind of led me to a conclusion that the only way to affect real change is to infect the body politic and to take over the democratic party from the inside before we can make any meaningful changes from the outside. So what are the counterpoints to that argument? Look, I have no issue with people trying. I, like most of us, I think we're very hopeful and enthusiastic about the prospect of AOC and her cohort getting elected in 2018 and then in 2020, growing the squad further. I mean, I was there. I was, I remember covering her election, the the primary for the intercept. I had been there maybe a couple of weeks and wow. we were sent way up to the Bronx and it was this huge empty pool hall. No one thought she was going to win. And I remember sitting there eating nachos with uh, Rodrigo from the intercept. And I think Ryan Grimm ended up coming up at some point. And in this empty room, there were some chapos there covering it, but honestly, there wasn't that much interest. And then we saw the direction it was going as the votes came in. And suddenly there's Cynthia Nixon and every news camera and AOC standing on the table, giving that big speech and the room was crowded. We were jubilant, right? We really thought the kinds of things that she were, were, was saying during her race, the fact that she had been recruited by this organization whose stated purpose was to have an adversarial approach to politics. Here's a woman who says Joe Biden and I shouldn't even be in the same party. And now she is sitting in Congress with the opportunity to use her pulpit to call out all of the hypocrisies of the Democratic Party from within. It, it's a it's a I don't think it is a strategy that is impossible, but it is a strategy that I think has been undermined by the failure of elected progressives to act on it. And I don't say that in an effort to undermine them personally or to pretend as though the job is easy. It's not. But that was, in fact, the job they were sent there to do, which they seemed to grasp when they were campaigning and um, relying on the help of progressives who knocked doors and hosted them on their podcasts and did all the things when they were running. And so I, I think that a lot of folks have legitimate questions about the viability of that strategy practically, given that people who seem like really resolute fighters and true believers, I don't, I don't disbelieve someone like Cori Bush who led a legitimately difficult life 
um, lived in her car, faced real significant economic precarity, represents a real departure from the kind of person who typically is in Congress. I don't doubt for a second what's in the heart and soul of most of that cohort. But for whatever reason, we have seen um, them employ a kind of rotating villain strategy where some of them get to take good votes and some of them take the hard votes that will get Mm. pushed back from the community uh, as long as it makes, as long as they ensure that collectively the bill will pass. Mm. You know, we've seen AOC brought to tears. I have a lot of empathy for that moment, brought to tears by Nancy Pelosi on the House floor and then change her vote on that Iron uh, Iron Dome vote. But at no point in the year since ever come forward and explain what it was that was said to her or how she was threatened or coerced or rely on the community that elected her to have her back in a moment like that. And of course, there was the whole Michigas over force the vote. So at a certain point, we know, we know because we've seen it, that they are not willing to do what the House Freedom Caucus has demonstrated as possible. So, you know, I, I'm hopeful. I'd like to say I'm not, I wouldn't say that I don't think the strategy could ever work because we've seen it work. The question is whether or not it's likely to work and whether or not I'm willing to kind of say to others, especially people who don't have that much money and time to give, hey, this is something that you should be really investing in as opposed to other kinds of strategies. Right. I, I had um, I had written a uh, pretty strongly uh, worded defense of AOC titled uh, Hands Off AOC not too many <laughs> months ago, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was because we were in the middle of our uh, doing a uh, it was I think it was a five or six part series on the history of socialism. And uh, I had come across um, I come across an article that Trotsky wrote about Rosa Luxemburg, who is at the time getting a lot of criticism from um, from Marxists because she was advocating against a takeover of the SPD in Germany saying mm-hmm. that it it wasn't ready. Uh, and so here you have, you know, she's probably one of the most prominent economic thinkers of her period and also, you know, social agitators of her period. But she was she was calling for calm and that this wasn't the right time. Ultimately, of course, the, the revolution there got her killed. Um, and so she, I think she was prescient in that respect because the SPD actually wound up uh, taking a back seat. Um, but I, I, I think that moment, reading that kind of stuck with me that, you know, here's Trotsky, who's the architect of the actual, uh, the Bolshevik takeover saying, you know, we need to exercise caution in this time because it was the German people that weren't ready for it. And I think that that sort of gave me a a little bit of a different framework to understand the difficulty that the squad faces in what is not a uniform or monolith voting block in this country in, in any stretch or, you know, of the imagination. Well, so, can I can I ask you about that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Very specifically, I'm talking about issues on which there is a uniform monolithic, well, not monolithic, but overwhelming voting block for various issues. So when you say America, the country, the party, whichever it is, isn't ready for it, I'm curious what the it is. Is it the overwhelmingly uh, supported $15 minimum wage that is frankly out of date at this point? Uh, a policy that 60% of Floridians voted for in the same election that that state went for Donald Trump in, in 2016? Are we talking about the Medicare for all, which is supported by 88% of the Democratic base, but just a small fraction of elected Democrats? 
Are we talking about a ceasefire in Gaza, which is supported by a majority of every religious group, whether it's Catholics, Protestants, or Jewish Americans who 50% support a ceasefire and a quantity less than 50%, I'm sorry, I don't have that in front of me, mm-hmm. um, don't support a ceasefire. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we would be asking for squad members to t- taking a lead on. Of course, most of them do support a ceasefire and have, and have said as much. But there's this bigger question of what saying that means if you're willing to preemptively during a primary, not during a general, but during a primary, say there are no alternatives. We should not be throwing our support behind an alternative candidate that actually reflects our values. So that actually brings me I I don't want to answer your question with a question, but more to actually just build upon that idea, because you had a great conversation with Anat Shankar Osario recently, who was talking about that type of messaging. You're a, a, a comms person yourself. You're you know, one of, I mean, you're one of the most effective messaging uh, outlets, I think, in on the left. Um, and and you talked about that Medicare for all issue, saying, you know, here's something that is, I mean, widely accepted. And even the framing of Medicare for all is more accepted, I think, that she was saying in polling data than universal health care. Um, uh, there are other, other ways that they had tested and polled that sentiment. Uh, and Medicare for all was, it was pretty much a, like a thumbs up across the board. Um, and yet it seemed like it was so tethered to the campaigns that you helped manage in, in 2020, to the Bernie movement, for example, that it didn't have life outside of itself. And so in a roundabout way, I guess I'm returning it to there's the support that's in the the world and in the country. Then there's the support that's actually in this really fractured body that is the house. Um, And even though this stuff polls really well, we don't seem to have consensus among the members of the house that it's going to poll just enough for them to be safe in their independent districts. So... When we talk about that type of messaging, it feels to me like it, it, it just, I guess it reinforces the idea that we need more of these people to be safeguarded so that they're not outliers. We need to elect more progressives to this very fractured house that represent these values so that we can continue to normalize these concepts instead of normalizing them through the auspices of one particular candidate like Bernie. Does that make sense? So I would agree with you if I thought it was true that the reason that there is a gap between what the public wants, 88 percent of Democrats, 50 percent of 49 percent of Republicans also Mm -hmm. want Medicare for all. I would agree with you if I believe that the gap between what the public wants and what elected Congress members are willing to vote for was about them having done polling in their individual districts and finding that Medicare for all wasn't popular. I don't think that that's what's happened at all. Over, Medicare for all is overwhelmingly popular. At 88% within the Democratic Party, I think you'd be hard pressed to find very many districts where a majority of that district didn't support Medicare for all. And when you look down a whole host of deeply unpopular policies that Democrats are unflinching in supporting, including a lot of these foreign funding bills, which are not very popular, you can see very quickly that popularity is not what's driving this decision-making. What's driving this decision-making correlates much more closely to where they're getting their corporate 
donations from. Joe Biden, right. uh, not so coincidentally, has taken more money from the or took more money in the health from the healthcare industry in 2020 than anybody else in the race, and took more billionaire money in 2020 than any other candidate in the race. And lo and behold, look who ends up winning. Right. So, I, I Dean Phillips brought up a similar argument to me recently on the show saying Medicare for all is a messaging issue. We got to just keep working at this. We got to elect more people. I reject that. I reject that as a way to cover for elected Democrats who are willing to are and are able and enabled to ignore the will of their constituents by lying to them about the popularity of progressive ideas and saying that it's either have me in office or have me fight for Medicare for all, but those are the trade-offs. I think that that is fundamentally untrue and that they are using that as a shield from having to be honest about the fact that they are corrupt and bought. I watched that with um, Big Box Popcorn and (laughs) uh, I I was, so I actually thought that he acquitted himself better uh, than I thought he was going to. Me too. I have to say, I I think he did a, a really admirable job there. And Actually, there was there was a piece of that that reminds me of something that uh, we had Professor uh, Rashid Khalidi from Columbia University on recently to talk about uh, the war in Gaza. And he talked about the gerontocracy, the Biden-Bernie gerontocracy when it comes to the specific lens that they view Israel as a state, Israel and its right, the role that it kind of plays historically and what it means to people the heartstrings that it means to people rather than what is actually happening right now. And it was interesting that Dean Phillips, as a as a Jewish man, as a, as a white Jewish man in this country, was but younger, is sort of caught in this in-between where he has a connection to it, but he also has, he's a little bit younger than the Bernies and the Bidens of the world that don't have that form- formative uh, view of Israel. And you and I saw him with you trying to kind of work through this. It's like you were speaking to him and he was like acknowledging the difficulty of it. But there was still sort of like, yeah, but it's important to have it. It's important that it's there. Now, the younger group, the younger voting bloc in this country isn't as tied historically to I guess some of the shibboleths that we that we hold dear to in this country, like, you know, we can't have nice things like Medicare for all because that's socialist medicine or, uh, you know, we can't stop the atrocities in in Gaza because, you know, Israel's our partner, our ally and all the same talking points. The younger generation just feels it, it seems like they're looking at things a little bit differently. When you look out over the landscape, then do you think that there is that there is more potential change with every passing election on the horizon, this one notwithstanding, to actually normalize some of these ideas like Medicare for all that, like, as you point out, are enormously popular. I mean, I think that still continues to sort of miss the point, right? It's normalized. This is not a messaging battle. And I think we're already losing if we buy into the idea that we need to somehow be more persuasive. We have convinced the requisite number of people What is the obstacle to Medicare for all or any of these other policies is the will of elected Congress members. You can't convince somebody of something they're paid not to understand, right? Mm -hmm. And this in the most literal sense. I mean, that expression is used in all kinds of contexts. But here we're actually talking about political donations driving 
political outcomes. I mean, I'm sure you're very familiar with the classic 2014 Princeton study, which showed that America is not a democracy precisely for this reason, that when you chart what the public interest is, what Americans overwhelmingly support from a policy perspective and the policies that that elected officials are willing to move on, there is no correlation between the two. The correlation exists between their donor base, not their voter base and elected officials. And so when I have these critiques of the squad and the like, part of the issue is that to me, the fundamental project has to be exposing that rift to the public. And who's in a better position to do so than the person who's inside the literal house, the the literal and figurative house? The call should be coming from inside the house. (laughs) And yet when there are these opportunities, I mean, just really imagine what it looks like. AOC has more goodwill, is a better fundraiser, has all of these things going for her as compared to most members of Congress. And she benefited from the the support of people who don't really necessarily share her politics, but who believed, believed at the time and continue to believe that progressivism is as much about belonging to various identity groups as it is about what you believe in. And that, frankly, is an advantage for her. I, I'm not, I don't say that as a as a diss, like whatever, take, take, what, take what you got and run with it. And she had an opportunity, therefore, to persuade people who liked her because of who she was, that her politics were fundamentally good and to do some political education as to what the public should be looking for. And given all of those sympathies, the fact that people want to know what she's wearing to the Met Ball and that she looks gorgeous in the pages of glossy magazines, I say that sincerely. She's beautiful and interesting and all of that is a part of it. To be publicly crying because the leader of your caucus dressed you down over a principled vote that you had taken not to continue to fund an apartheid state and to, in effect, run cover, like in effect, to run cover for Nancy Pelosi by not explaining what it was that coerced you into changing your vote that day. Imagine a world where instead of having these kind of leaked articles about Pramila Jayapal, head of the Progressive Caucus, whipping progressives to not withhold their vote for the first COVID relief bill in Mm -hmm. order to ensure that a $15 minimum wage, the overwhelmingly and broadly popular and well over long overdue $15 minimum wage was a part of this must pass legislation, must pass. The country was going to grind to a halt. We weren't going to get vaccines distributed. It was must pass legislation. And it could have included a $15 minimum wage. And there was nothing Republicans could have done about it except for vote down the entire thing and keep all of their businesses ground ground to a halt. Mm -hmm. And the, the scuttlebutt it was, it was reported that Pramila Jayapal whipped them all to not withhold their votes, to not vote as a block, to not do with the kind of thing the Freedom Caucus did. Imagine if they had come to the public that information instead of, in effect, running cover for Pramila Jayapal for whatever reason that she did what she did. Mm-hmm. Imagine a world where instead of blaming the tone of podcasters during the force to vote moment and focusing on one podcaster in particular, instead of the sincere, thoughtful, compassionate arguments that were being made by people like Dr. Cornell West and Crystal Ball and Kyle Kalinske and Chris Hedges and myself, instead of saying, oh, these are these are meanies and therefore we're not going to take advantage of this political opportunity. Imagine if they had called us up and called us in and said, off the record, can we really make this happen? 
But that is just not the world that we live in. And I think we have to be honest about that, that those were all choices and opportunities, one after another, after another, after another, that happened over the course of the last three, almost four years now, that mm. led the left to lose trust in those elected officials. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. I remember myself after Force the Vote saying, well, look, maybe AOC, maybe they all do have something up their sleeves. Maybe they are saving their political capital for some moment that I can't I can't grok because I'm not an insider and they're smarter than I am. But there's only so many times you can suspend your disbelief and give the benefit of the doubt right. before you realize that in doing so, you've watched them squander opportunities that will never come back. That was really a once, that was certainly a once in a administration opportunity and it's potentially a once in a generation opportunity. Yeah, I remember thinking at the time that they just got beat, that they actually got outplayed, that um, that promises were maybe made, likely made, hinted towards, and then um, with that no one had any intention of keeping and that they uh, learned a very hard lesson. To your point, though, um, you know, where was the comeback on that? And and but I guess that still puts me back in a place where it's tough to always be the outliers in a group and that our job uh, on the progressive left is then to give them strength in numbers. Now, uh, I'll give I'll give a, a pretty big caveat to that, which is that I think, you know, uh, within the last decade, if there were, I don't know, 15 even titular uh, heads of the progressive movement across the country, the uh, the, the stalwarts like my one of my favorites, uh, Bloomy Earl Blumenauer, uh, who I think people never see coming. Um, maybe that there were a handful of people out there to where they have now a hundred people in the progressive caucus. A lot of them by name only. A lot of them there just for the letterhead, and, and you know certainly placeholders that just want to caucus with them. Uh, but that that indicates that there's still strength in a movement if we can coordinate it and get more of them. So those light blue districts that are out there, can we make them solidly blue by running primaries in in particular districts where we can keep adding to it, knowing that the enormous um, weight against them. Like we saw, uh, you know, the 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 weight that APAC brought to bear against Summer Lee, even though she made it through, or uh, Nina Turner's campaign, which did not. That there are huge forces at play against anybody that that is progressive in these districts, and yet we still have to surround the core with more people that are willing to fight for the fifteen dollar minimum wage because it's popular, Medicare for all, and all that. That it. I guess the way that I've been thinking about it more recently is that we have these existential threats to, yes, democracy, but also to the planet, and that to rebuild an apparatus outside of the system is simply too expensive and it's going to take too long because you already hit on one of the root issues. If we can't get money out of the system, then we can't take over. So we can't certainly take it over from the from the top down. So we're going to have to take it over from the inside out in order to sort of decorrupt everything. I still, I guess I, 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 it's like a circular loop where I wind up in the same position being like, God, we're running out of time. And I think that's one of the greatest frustrations that I have in trying to wrap my mind around this because I, I genuinely hear and feel everything that you're saying about their lack or their, 
I guess their complicity with the Democratic plan writ large, the, the, the Democratic Party. But I still want more of them so that they feel more comfortable making bold choices and bold moves. Does that make sense? Why do you think that with more people, they will suddenly gain courage when there are currently 101 members of the Progressive Caucus? And they are, as you as you alluded to, progressive. Many of them are progressive in name only. And when mm. you see a very small number of Freedom Caucus members demonstrating a willingness to attract the ire of the establishment Republican Party, despite being a minority of the Republican Party, they don't require numbers. So why do you feel as though the squad would change? I don't mean to call them out like specifically, but whatever group of progressives sure. would suddenly gain a backbone um, if there were suddenly twice as many, four times as many, 10 times as many of them? Well, I, I guess it's, um, I, I guess it's somewhere in that, in the messaging that Shankar Osario was talking about and, you know, about mainstreaming ideas and, and getting them accepted. You've made the point already, of course, that the, the big, a lot of big popular ideas have already been mainstreamed, but the political courage isn't there. Um, it's going to take an extraordinary effort, I think, to mainstream them to the point where they feel more secure and more confident in their votes and in standing up to uh, to the power within the Democratic base, within the halls of Congress, which comes back to who's in control of the purse strings and the money. So but, but, committees... But no, I guess go ahead. Secure, secure how? Because here's the thing. AOC said, I didn't say this, I believe it, but I didn't say it. AOC said I would rather be a one-term congresswoman than betray my values. Right. So secure how? Secure in their seat? I got to tell you, I don't care. I don't got mm-hmm. I don't care if a BU graduate with plenty of opportunities who could be out of Congress and be making a million dollars a year as a co-host of the View or whatever she wants to do with her life isn't in Congress anymore. Either you're in Congress doing the thing you were sent to Congress to do. Or you're of no use to me. AOC sitting there without acting as an adversarial outsider mm-hmm. is is in her presence actually doing negative work because she is legitimating a system that is fundamentally corrupt, but which is allowed to look like it is in fact legitimate because of her presence in it. This is the same kind of technique that has been used with um, diversity and diversifying various workplaces, politics, et cetera, over time. Many people have pointed out that all of the UN representatives who have been raising their hand to veto ceasefire agreements are black over and over and over again. The, 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 the blood, the blood covered hand that is the, what's obstructing the overwhelming voice of the rest of the world that wants to bring this siege to an end is routinely over and over again, a black, a black American hand. We see some of the most resilient and powerful gatekeepers of the democratic party are figures like Jim Clyburn, who is able to whip the black vote. I think 66% of South Carolinians in uh, 2016, uh, sorry, in 2020. So they voted for Joe Biden specifically because of Jim Clyburn's endorsement, but not anything organic or or inherent to Joe Biden himself. 
And so it's not just a, it's a, a racial va validation, although you can go also and look at all the black mayors and black cities who went through Michael Bloomberg's um, mayor program. And lo, lo, lo and behold, they come out on the other side of that, accepting all of the money that comes along with that. And suddenly they're building cop city in Atlanta. Is that in the interest of the people of Atlanta, of the black citizens of Atlanta, who during the notice and comment period came out overwhelmingly in opposition to, to cop city? So at a certain point, figures, whether they are purportedly progressive figures or people who signal progressivism through their identity, are being used to prop up what the public needs to understand are failed and failing systems. And my view is that while I appreciate and I sympathize and I feel the same way about the frustrations of how long is it going to take, we're running out of time environmental crisis, people are dying from a lack of healthcare every day, Gaza, all of these things are extremely exigent. But it seems to me as impossible and as it is taking as long a time to elect 20, 20, not much less 100 AOCs as it does to have a different kind of project, which is to delegitimize the two-party system. And so I am much more inspired by projects like Rashida Tlaib's and the Abandoned Biden movement that says, let's put the onus on the Democratic Party to prove why they deserve our votes. Let's reframe this. They, We know what they're going to say. We caused Trump to get reelected. But if a movement begins earlier, early enough and is framed appropriately to say the ball is in your court, here are votes that could go to you. Here are voters that voted for you in 2020. Here are our consistent Democratic voting demographics, and we can deliver to you these votes if you meet these baseline requirements that are preferred by overwhelming majorities of your base. Fifteen. I'm not. I'm not saying that if Joe Biden doesn't abolish ICE, we shouldn't vote for Joe Biden. I'm saying if Joe Biden doesn't end a genocide in Gaza, doesn't su support a living wage. The minimum wage has not been raised since the, the end of the Bush era. The longest period of time since the since the uh, the minimum wage was enacted in what 1939. Mm -hmm. You know these are this is this is not a tall order, and the fact that there is not a left, we're supposed to be the vanguard of the left. The fact that there is not a left that is willing to do the bare minimum of saying, "Hey, I'm not going to vote for the guy this time." When the we only got the basic social safety net programs that we have because of a real radical left flank that was asking for substantive mm -hmm. socialist programs and not just the kind of democratic socialism that that passes for radicalism today. I feel like we are complicit in enabling the status quo when we are more concerned about the fate of a corporate democratic party than we are about advancing the kinds of basic social policies that are genu genuinely life-saving, not just because we're talking in the context of Gaza, which is horrific to the eye in a way that is more visceral, but is not mm -hmm. more important than the tens of thousands of people who die and are immiserated in the United States of America every single year over year after year because those issues are grandfathered into the status quo. And we say, that's just the way it is. We got to vote blue because the alternative is worse. The alternative will always be worse with that thinking because what pressure is there for our ostensible side to ever get better? So let me, let me put this in... Um let me pull in a historical corollary and then talk about maybe a little bit of what's different today that I think adds maybe uh, an even more pressing dynamic to it. So if we think about 
if we think about what what would now be considered radical movements from the past that that I think made that that's that pulled the country truly to the left direction um we can look at the the multiple candidacies let's say of Eugene Debs Mm-hmm. I think there's a fair argument to be made that the so-called progressive, you know, Teddy Roosevelt administration and and maybe the um, and and maybe Taft part of the Taft administration was as a result and in response to ideas that were normalized, mainstreamed, and popularized by the likes of of Eugene Debs. And it was actually, and this is actually an interesting corollary we could talk about because you you have a really strong. Um, You've done a lot of strong work on uh, the state of the unions in this country and the, and especially what happened just recently with UAW. But at the time, it was actually the unions that were the undoing of Debs before even the institutional parties had gotten to him. And even still, the so-called progressives of the time had to tailor their policies to things that were more popular to people because they had been normalized by the likes of the Socialist Party. What I feel is a little bit so I, I feel in a, in a, that Bernie had done that in a way that we hadn't seen for a very very long time in bringing the make just putting them around the dinner table. I mean, it sounds really simple and innocuous, but even having this stuff talked about openly, where it's not scary and it's not you know hearkening uh, back to some sort of you know Cold War era uh, type dialogue was really important, but. The twist I want to add to it is that it seems like we have gotten to a point in this country where we can only govern by omnibus, that everything, everything has to happen within the first 18 months of an administration because it's almost like clockwork that you're going to get into some sort of congressional intransigence, you know, partway through the first of somebody's term. And I, and I think we saw that play out over, we're seeing that playing out in the Biden administration. We saw that during Barack Obama's tenure as well. And so I offer that to sort of contextualize the role of these progressive caucus members, not generally, but in this moment in time, which was different than how they misplayed it in the very beginning. I would argue that right now, there isn't a lot to be done, done legislatively, policy-wise, but there's a tremendous amount that needs to be done in terms of messaging and optics and issues and bring them to the surface, much in the way that Rashida Tlaib is doing right now. Um, but you, so it, it, that's, that's a long setup to ask you specifically, those, what are the failures that we can legitimately point to by the progressives in, in the House over the last couple of years, other than let's say the Iron Dome vote and, and, um, losing the plot on, on 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 some other major spending bills and not including things what could they have done differently on specific measures over the since since the point where congress has flipped that but that's not the point the point is that before congress but we all know that congress is going to flip we all know that historically the party in power use, loses votes in the midterm mm-hmm. we we were all saying during force the vote, this is your opportunity. They this don't the get time. points for saying, well, then the thing that we all knew was going to happen happened and then you couldn't do anything. No, the whole game of the establishment is to hold off progressives from acting 
until they can legitimately no longer act and then blame everything bad on the world on the fact that Republicans or Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin won't allow us to have good things. That's the game. So no, I don't accept that premise. I don't accept the idea that, well, well, if I can't explain what they could have been doing after the point at which they obviously couldn't do very much at all, then it's not worth criticizing them. No, the critique is that they let it get to that point without acting in the way that they should have. Did not seize the opportunities that were available to them when quite obviously they were only going to be available for a limited window. Remember, we were talking about budget reconciliation bills. Already we had a slim majority in the Senate, in addition to the House. We knew that you didn't have a filibuster-proof majority and that the only real opportunities for Joe Biden to legislate were going to be through executive action, which, by the way, he still could do with student debt. He he could have done Mm -hmm. with student debt um, if he had just canceled all the debt without having it being means tested. You wouldn't have been able to have those um, challenges before the Supreme Court that enjoined him from doing so. Uh, and also by through these um, two bites at the budget reconciliation apple that they had a year. Mm-hmm. And so that is precisely why it was so toxic and destructive for Pramila Jayapal, as it was reported, this isn't me doing an ad hominem, um, to derail progressives from what apparently was a good instinct that they had, which was to say, we yeah. got to juice this this fruit <laughs> while we have it. Cause it's, it's literally the only bite of the apple we're going to have to make this a really tortured analogy. And then and remember, remember the posture of everything that happened there. I, I don't mean to harp on this. I know I feel like I talk about this in every other procedural episode. That no, we've no, 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 this made. is important. But this, this is, this is why it matters. Budget reconciliation, budget reconciliation means you can pass things with the bare majority. That's how the COVID relief bill was going to go through. Everybody understood this fact. When Chuck Schumer said that because the parliamentarians advice he was going to strip $15 minimum wage out of that bill. One, it was malarkey, to use the terminology of the president. This the, is unfucking the republic. You can pretty much say whatever you want to say. <laughs> it, was, it was bullshit. The parliamentarian has only an advisory opinion. Republicans like George Bush have fired the parliamentarian over much less. He wanted to drill in the Arctic. The parliamentarian said no. He said, out, out with you. We'll get a new one. But the Democrats were looking for an excuse. And if you go back and look at the timeline and listen to the bad faith episodes at the time, you could see the writing on the wall back in February. Joe Biden started mumbling things about how, well, I think the parliamentarian is going to stop me. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? You're just going to put that out there? Oh, how would you know that? (laughs) tell? And so lo and behold, the parliamentarian gives him the excuse they needed. Chuck Schumer takes the $15 minimum wage out of that bill to put it back in now because it's no longer a budget reconciliation, uh, one of the budget reconciliation options. It requires 60 votes. So all the Democrats get to say, oh, yeah, sure, I would have voted for it. I, I would I would vote to put it back in. But oh, well, shucks. I don't have the votes for it because of those dastardly Republicans. Bernie's tried, but it mm-hmm. was an exercise in futility. And then, of course, now we can all blame someone else, Kirsten Sinema, Cinema, Joe Manchin, all the Republicans for not being able to have the most basic of living wage provisions included in the billions, trillion dollars that was spent in this COVID relief package. That was the largest upper transfer of wealth in American history and could have at least given us a $15 minimum wage to boot. I mean, the 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 the, the evil, frankly, of that historical moment should not this should go down in infamy. It told you everything you needed to know. And even then, many of us, including myself, were willing to give uh, progressives a little bit of latitude. Okay, they're saying there's going to be this uh, human uh, infrastructure bill. 
let's see, this is the second bite of the apple. Let's see what happens. Of course, they bifurcate the bill. They mm-hmm. pass the stuff that Republicans want and, and the human infrastructure bill gets chopped up into oblivion. Oh, who could have predicted that? Literally everybody. Why on earth would you bifurcate something except to make it easier to kill the part that you don't want while not compromising the part that you do? And instead of loudly saying, there was a little bit of agitation. I remember AOC being mad and I'll give her credit for that around that. But the the what I'm looking for is them calling out the members of their own party that enable that. And not just Joe Manchin. The leadership of your party that has clearly architected the outcomes that we're getting. Because yeah. I'm telling you this, Chuck Schumer is not stupid. Nancy Pelosi is not stupid. These are no, not they're very activists. deaf. They're very they're very deft politicians for sure. De- De- Democrats are not oopsie daisying themselves into these situations. <laughs> You're so okay. This is exactly what I was looking for. This is wonderful. Uh, And it is, it is because, you know, I'm in my own head a lot and I'm, you know, responding to our audience and not, you know, but it's, it's, it's not in a, in a live environment where you're able to kind of work these things out. And I am, I guess a lot of, a lot of the, the, the motion that I bring to the table is like, okay, so, so it's the now what, and what are the sentiments that we should be expressing? And I think that what you're showing is, is that there's never not a time when you should, when you, you, you can't push back and express these sentiments and you, you can't have the fear of some sort of backlash. You have to be authentically, you have to be true to your principles and authentic to that. And then also by extension, we have to expect that of the people that we rep, that we elect to represent us if they said that that's what exactly what they were going to do. I think from a practical, pragmatic standpoint, some of them are probably awestruck by, by how difficult and, um, and, and dis, functionally dysfunctional the whole process is because I do believe that to to be deliberate. And there are forces within the party that are moneyed forces that are absolutely working against this type of this type of change. There's something else though that you expressed in in that debate that and 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 I think that this will be this might be inartful in the way that I kind of bring this out because um we joke around on on our show that, you know, I am coming at I'm coming at the whole world for better, for worse, uh, as through the lens of a basic white guy. And so a lot of, a lot of the things and the instincts that I have are counterintuitive to a lot of the policies that I, that I would like to have based upon my, my life experience and upbringing. So I never try to put myself in anybody else's shoes to explain kind of what they should do or think, but that's exactly what was happening in my, in my view as an outsider during that debate. Uh, and and it's something I, w- I was hoping that you could articulate for us because I, f- I felt like you were expressing something that Crystal and Kyle weren't hearing at the time, which is, um, and, I, and I think I'm paraphrasing you to say that there are so many people in this country that do not see themselves on the ballot, that historically marginalized group and groups and black voters in particular do not see themselves on the ballot any longer and certainly not in the way that they had they have in the past whether things came to fruition or not but there's even something different happening right now so we have 
the Clyburns of the world, we have the older generation of voters, the gerontocracy, that are still somewhat emotionally tethered to what the Democratic Party might mean to them in the past. Even somebody like RFK Jr. has an appeal to older African-American voters because of the Kennedy name. And we're seeing that in some some of the polling data. Even some of the older uh, African-American voters see themselves in the uh, in the leftist agitation that Dr. West brings to the table. But younger African-American voters aren't tied to the Democratic Party in the same way. They're not tied to, let's say, the Kennedy name. They're not tied to Cornell West. That they are motivated by different, um, by different things that no party actually represents for them. And so my, my question for you is, I, I think the danger among the black vote in particular is that they just won't show, that they're not going to show up, that the older um, community will not show up to the degree that it normally has. And that's their way of kind of voting de facto for for the change that they don't want. But I can't get a beat on what the younger African-American generation is going to look like in how they're going to express their vote going forward because they don't see themselves on the ballot and they don't have these historical ties. Again, I know that's in an artful way to get to this point of asking like, what are the cultural and generational differences going to look like and how are they going to express themselves through voting or, or staying home going forward? Um, well, we have some numbers on this mm-hmm. and I don't have them in front of me, but a larger percentage of black voters, like almost 50% of black voters just tweeted about this the other day are planning to not vote for Joe Biden or that's polls. Who's who knows what happens when voting day actually comes. I wouldn't be too, um, credulous about that, but a significant poll suggests that a historically significant number of black voters are not going to vote for Joe Biden. And the reason isn't some culturally circumscribed reason. It's because of Gaza and genocide. It's not because black people feel something as black people. It's because black people perhaps have more of a sense of solidarity with Palestinians because of some sense of shared history and shared oppression, the same way that I believe Irish people are deeply invested in the humanitarian cause of Palestinians because of their own history of oppression. But it's not it's not a black it's not a black issue. It's just a human rights issue. It's a humanitarian issue. And it's very similar across the board. Like I think I mentioned earlier that there's not a religious group that doesn't feel the same way, uh, that isn't um, overwhelmingly in support of a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I, I don't know that I agree that it's that older voters are going to stay home as opposed to younger voters. I mean, older voters tend to just go ahead and vote Democrat no matter what. They might be slightly depressed overall, but to the extent that we see a trend, it's going to be with what younger voters, and I don't mean actual young voters, I just mean not the boomers, Um, you know, what, what Gen X and millennials and Gen Z end up doing. Um, and if the abandoned Biden campaign and things like that are any indication, I think there are a lot of people who are going to not vote for Biden. Now, I think that it's better to affirmatively vote for an alternative to demonstrate that you are someone who has the initiative to vote and you could have had that vote, vote converted into a vote for a Democrat. And so Democrats realize they actually lost something and, and they're not dealing with non-voters who don't get as much political attention. That's why I, I think it's so important to have third parties that represent a progressive platform like the Green Party 
So you need to not just throw your vote somewhere and then the, that's bad and then the Democrat Democratic Party moves in that bad direction. I don't think it's useful to vote for RFK Jr. because of his foreign policy positions, for instance. Um, and it's why I think there's so much value in people like Cornell West and Jill Stein and, and even to some extent up until this point, Marianne Williamson are in the race to give people a landing point. Even Dean Phillips, who I substantively disagree with, I think he's the only option on the ballot in the Democratic primary. And I think there's a good argument for voting for him to vote against Joe Biden. He's not going to win. Do you, th <laughs> do you think it was a right? mistake for uh, Cornell West to abandon the Green Party? And do you think he's finding out the hard way that actually organizing uh, ballots initiatives is more difficult? More expensive. Yeah, I mean, I just interviewed him about this today, and it's up today. Um, and I have the utmost respect for Dr. West, and I understand I pressed him a little harder, and I think he's been pressed on the reasons why he left. Mm. And I, I respect him wanting to run a campaign the way he wanted to run it. Um, and apparently there was some pushback from the Green Party about how he messaged and the extent to which he centered race. And some feeling that there wasn't a real investment in him topping the ticket. And, you know, he articulated some competitiveness with Jill Stein as a, as a, as a potential candidate herself. I don't know how much of that mm. is true. I will, I will want to do a follow-up interview with Jill Stein as well, but you know, I, I respect Cornell West and I respect his choices. That being said, you know, it is frustrating as someone who was really hoping for someone for the left to coalesce around to see, a multiplicity of options emerge with no consolidation, with no mm -hmm. planning ahead, and with, it it seems, competing egos that are driving some of these decisions as opposed to a, 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 a bigger investment in the future of the left that is more powerful than any ego, any, any one given ego, or who tops a ticket, or what party you're running on. I think all of this is very predictable. Hmm. I'd say the same with RFK Jr., by the way, him saying, oh, my gosh, the Democratic Party is being so mean to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kel Supreme, sir. I mean, the writing <laughs> was on the wall. Or Dean Phillips saying, I regret saying that Bernie was a poor loser. It actually is hard to run outside of the Democratic machine. Well, I'm glad you have that recognition now. <laughs> but they all kind of sound like people who are like those guys who say, uh, um, I didn't really care about sexual assault. And then I had a daughter, you know, like mm -hmm. <laughs> <it> take <laughs> having a literal girl child who you love. And so therefore you're protective of to be able to have empathy with another human being who has X, Y, or Z concern. And so like, yeah, I'm glad you're there. And I don't mean to be too hard on people, but yeah, it was predictable that MPP was going to be a bad idea for yeah. Cornell West. It was a wonderful thing, I thought, when he joined the Green Party, because that was a kind of a consolidation. And it was frustrating to see him leave the Green Party, especially since, unlike RFK Jr., he doesn't have the money that is required to, in all likelihood, get him on a non-trivial number of ballots. I hope to be wrong about that. I hope to be wrong about that. But that's not the writing on the wall. You know, I don't get into uh, much of the vaccine controversy or, or that side of RFK. Um because the his bizarre foreign policy stances that really don't ally with some of the signaling that he's done. Um, and also, he is just a he I mean, I, I find him to be a, a libertarian in not much of a disguise. I mean, he is a a fervent supporter and defender of the so-called free market approach, uh, economic approach. And 
I just found his candidacy wholly bizarre, just on almost every level. Like it's like I couldn't pin him down specifically, except to say that um, I don't know that he actually stands for all that much. But yeah, look, I, I do think he is potentially the spoiler that we're not talking about enough. Uh, and and that's one of the one of the things that I that I that I sensed again, and this gets into a generational issue among the African American voting bloc, where I do feel like that name has some resonance, and I think we see that in the polling data. And then you have see that he has some resonance among libertarian factions, and then he has the anti-vax crowd, and it's just enough support that to me he could actually have the greatest impact in this next election, and it's like. If we want somebody to to send a message to the political system and to the duopoly, this ain't the ve- the vehicle that we really need. Yeah, it's frustrating because, but for his stance on Palestine, to be honest, I I could see myself, and I could see there being a, a cogent argument for using him as a vehicle to express our displeasure with the duopoly, especially now that he's running as an independent. Um, yeah. for me. Palestine is just a bridge too far. Uh, and the intensity, the the way that he makes his argument, it's not even just, I mean, Dean Phillips, I obviously deeply disagree with him, but at least he agrees that there's a humanitarian crisis and that Israel is going too far and that the death and destruction has to stop. I mean, like RFK Jr. Jr. is hardcore out here saying, I mean, I don't want to mischaracterize him, but go back and listen to any of my interviews with him on the Hill or the interviews he's given out elsewhere on Jimmy Dore or anywhere where he says things like uh, Israelis respect life and Palestinians want to kill people and they don't respect children and human shields and every bit of Hasbar you've ever heard in your life in a way that frankly seems sort of racial essentialist and mm. deeply wrong. Um so I just, I, I can't, but that's, what's part of what's so frustrating. I, in fact, today I also interviewed, um, Dennis Kucinich, who used to be his campaign hmm. manager for an episode that's coming out on Thursday. And I asked him about this stuff because Dennis Kucinich's record on Palestine is very different and he's now running for Congress in Ohio. And he's such an interesting guy. He has such a, he has such a bizarre story past too. It's like every time I want to love the guy, then he does, it's like a head fake. And I'm like, wait, what? I mean, yeah, he's an interesting there's character. Some stuff there. There's some abortion stuff there that we didn't get into. So, but, you know, he's running for office. He has been one of the more principled progressives on Medicare for all and a lot of really core policies at a time when very few people had the courage to articulate those preferences. And so it was very confusing to me that he was working with RFK Jr. even before October 7th um, because RFK Jr. was saying wild and crazy stuff about uh, Israel-Palestine before then. And so I asked him about that choice and what he was doing there. And, you know, you'll, you guys can make what you make of his answers. Um, but I was hopeful about the campaign in part because of Dennis Kucinich's involvement. And I was hopeful that he might be able to persuade RFK Jr. out of certain of these positions and that maybe this could be a vehicle for expressing left discontent. It just hasn't worked out that way. Brianna, I want to be really respectful of your time, and I'm incredibly grateful that you've uh, given me so much of it. Um, I would be remiss, though, if I didn't ask you uh, some in, uh, one inside baseball question before you go, uh, and that is about Bernie 2020 versus Bernie 2016. So you were on the front lines in the 2020 campaign, um, and you reported on him uh, you know, prior to that and are obviously very familiar with him. 
I, I feel like I have a uh, an unreliable narrator in my memory about 2020 because it the delegate count kind of tells the opposite story in of what my mind was telling me, which is like 2016 was the setup for 2020 being the freight train. And it felt to me like the real momentum was in 2020 and it took a pandemic and literally the whole of the democratic establishment to derail that train. But you were inside and you were, you know, messaging for the campaign and you got to kind of see it up close. When, when the primary started and when the season really started to heat up and Bernie was running the table, what were you all feeling at that moment? Did it feel like, oh my God, this this is happening. What what was the general sentiment? How did you feel? I mean, no, I think that it was the experience that I think was shared by people on the outside, which is that for most of the campaign, you were behind. Um, before Bernie even announced, or maybe shortly thereafter, there the first mainstream media attempt to derail him was to say Beto O'Rourke is the younger Bernie Sanders. So what's the point of Bernie? Remember that? Mm -hmm. And then Beto flamed out real quick because Davis <laughs> Rhoda did some good reporting on him about how he had betrayed his no fossil fuel pledge. And he never really recovered from some of that. It seemed like he very mm -hmm. quickly just petered out. Um, and then we had a million and one announcements. Kamala Harris came out strong out of the gate with a big crowd and the media was making this argument that she's the populist candidate. She had some fake version of Medicare for all. Everyone was doing their little Medicare for all routines, people to judge everybody. Medicare for all who wants want it, that absurdity. And Bernie didn't get any momentum. Not really. And hmm. then during the summer, Elizabeth Warren was rolling out Bernie-style policies in a more organized way, I'd say. And with, frankly, the kind of language and messaging that really appeals to the journalist class mm. with the right charts and the right jargon and the intersectionalities and whatnot sprinkled in. And she had attracted more of the, uh, I would say, left establishment progressive staff to work for her. So people like uh, Rihanna uh, Gunwright, who wrote the um, Green New Deal legislation and the, I believe also worked on the Medicare for All for Michigan that um, – What's his face uh, was running on when he was running for governor. I'm sorry, I'm just having a brain fart because it's so late. Um, Abdullah Saeed, mm. uh, she went to work for Warren. Like a lot of the, she she attracted a lot of the talent because again, she she was more of the friendly face of the intersectional, diverse version of the left. And the media was very much making the argument, well, what's the point of Bernie when Elizabeth Warren is younger and female and she's got all the same stuff, and mm. that was working through the summer. I remember being very nervous in around August of 2019. And then the heart attack happened right. and in October and the squad endorsements all came in and counterintuitively that was when Bernie started to get real momentum. And it was from October through February when the you know primary season really started in earnest that we were seeing an incredible shift in polls polls showing that that Bernie and Biden were basically tied for black support now the media didn't cover that so you don't get the real benefit of polls like that there's this like you know self-reinforcing mechanism that mm -hmm. can happen where if you have a good poll and then everybody believes it and then it becomes more in your favor because people want permission to believe what they believe we never had the advantage of that and then after 
Iowa wasn't, you know, there was all the discombobulation around who actually won Iowa because of Pete Buttigieg and the counting problems. And then Bernie didn't win New Hampshire by as much as people thought, but he won. And then he really won Nevada with 70% of the Latino vote. Then the establishment panicked. Right. They started saying things like, um, that's a white state. <laughs> it was it was truly unhinged. Um, but then they started coming out with all the Russiagate stuff. Nevada was when they started saying that Putin's rooting for Bernie. And then they all set up South Carolina as the state that really mattered because that was the diverse state, not Nevada with its Latino population, Latinos being greater in number in the United States of America than black Americans. Their votes don't matter. It's all about black Americans because they know black Americans always vote for Democrats. And so it's an easy, it's an easy uh, horse to hit your post to or vice versa. <laughs> Um, and so, of course, Clyburn, Clyburns, uh, you know, and then it's all it's, it was all a wrap. But it felt the the real promise. The the only time I really felt things were very very possible um, that there was real momentum was like that October to February period of time. Yeah. And even then, internally, there was there were indications that it wasn't it was going to be tough. Um, and it was. I, mm -hmm. I wasn't there for 2016, but my feeling was that 2016 had a lot more potential and it had to do with the, the energy that Bernie, I think, brought and the anti-corruption space and really taking it to Hillary Clinton in a way that he just did not take it to Joe Biden. I think he likes Joe mm -hmm. Biden and then he did not like Hillary Clinton. And I think he was I know that he was unwilling to call Joe Biden corrupt. And we know that because there was that scandal where an article was approved by David, uh, no, by um. Um, what's her name? Um, Zephyr Teachout about how um, corrupt uh, Joe Biden was, and the campaign basically retracted it or like denounced it, uh, even though it was completely true. And he just didn't have the appetite for making that essential argument that resonated when Trump made it and it resonated when Bernie made it in 2016 is that the system is establishedly corrupt. Politicians are bought and sold. My opponent is a tool of Wall Street and elites and not the people. And that's why you should vote for me. And he just would not he would not say that about Joe Biden. Um, I hope we can do this again. I absolutely love talking to you um is did i w when you started to turn the questions back to me um did i pee a little in my pants <laughs> sure sure <laughs> i wouldn't i'm used to hosting stuff not being on the hot seat um but at the same time it's just about the coolest thing that can happen um because i i do i i value your mind your input uh what you bring to the table and um you're just an un unrelenting sense of, of fairness is I think kind of missing in a lot of the media landscape. So um, I think it's super important. You're just a, a super important voice to have. And I really appreciate you being here. So thank you for your time. Today. I appreciate you. And I appreciate you saying that. And I, and I do want to say, I don't know that I'm right about anything. I don't know. All I know is that I'm in the same position that you are. And I've interviewed expert after expert after expert for like two and a half years now. And I, I can have a sense. Of, I'm not the, I'm not the most knowledgeable person in, in the world. I don't know the most about history. I don't know the most about politics. But I do pride myself on having pretty good analytical sensibilities. And when I start to feel like I'm being talked in circles and like there's some kind of trap that's being laid, and unintentionally or not, I'm responding to that. And all I feel like I'm like a mole in the ground, 
using my spidey senses to just to tell which way is up. I don't, I don't know anything, but I have an instinct and I have, my instinct is that the goal, I don't like people say I'm an accelerationist. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I would Mm -hmm. characterize myself in that way, but I am very skeptical of actions that have the effect of shoring up the status quo. Yeah. And I don't know what's going to happen to be disruptive to that status quo. And there could be potentially bad outcomes, but I do know what's going to happen if we shore up the status quo and that's guaranteed bad outcomes, the bad outcomes that so many millions of people have been living in, in perpetual immiseration for the, the history of this country. And if you accept the status quo is genuinely inadequate and you believed what Bernie said when he said it was unconscionable that 68,000 people die every year in the richest country in the history of the world simply because they're too poor to afford health care, sick care. If you believe that it's unconscionable that we have 25% of the world's prison population, if you believe in what, like 5% of the world's actual population, you know, if you actually believe the things that we all were so empowered to articulate and fight for in the Bernie candidacies. And I just don't see how you can make the red line Gaza Hmm. and not see all of the people who are, who are suffering in different ways in meaningfully different ways, but suffering nonetheless here and all around the world. Needlessly. Absolutely. Needlessly. Absolutely. Not to mention what's going on in the DRC, not to mention the effect of our sanctions around the world, not to mention, not to mention, not to mention. So I am encouraged by so many people um, adopting Gaza as their red line. I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth, as it were, but I would encourage people to interrogate why the line was there and why a certain kind of human tragedy counts more than a different kind. And that's not to say, obviously, genocide is in the words of many people, the worst thing that you can imagine. But that doesn't mean that there aren't very horrible things happening that are are just not as concentrated or that are more normalized, including the tens of thousands of people that are dead in the DRC. Um, And that we have kind of sort of given ourselves permission to ignore, myself included. That's not a value judgment. Yeah, I you know the it, the world is a big place, and there are only so many places that we can turn our attention to. But it it does it does feel um, I, the the conflict in Gaza I think has opened people's minds and hearts, and and I've heard a lot of this actually um, not really on on mainstream, but hearing this uh, from artists and activists saying, well, maybe this will open your mind and your hearts to other things that are going on around the world, Sudan, what's happening in DRC. And then there's uh, another place that we're actually going to be looking, we're spending the next month or so talking about Latin America and from an economic perspective, uh, from an authoritarian perspective, and what that pretends for uh, the the immigration crisis and no problem calling it a crisis but uh, some some blind spots that we actually have to what's happening uh below the southern border which are going to be really really interesting um and much closer to home that we're really not thinking about so there's a lot to talk about there i do think that we hit on a couple of things that are going to be critical in this upcoming election gaza being one of them and how that is um 
how that's resonating with a significant block of the of uh, the Democratic Party electorate. Um, but then also what's happening at the border. And these are two issues that the, this administration does not have a very good answer for at all. And is in fact, are probably uh, worsening as the days go on. And one of my fears, and hopefully at some point we, we can kind of return back to this to evaluate how things are going. One of my fears is that in an attempt to um, to stave off defeat in November, that the Democrats are going to wildly overcorrect and put in some immediately draconian policies and back the wrong horses, the back, the wrong humanitarian humanitarian horses in trying to hold on to this upcoming election. Exactly Absolutely. the opposite of what they should be doing, which is listening to people and listening to what people actually want. They're they're going to go the other way. So that's one of my big fears that uh, maybe yeah. we can talk Look, about. I like to say it takes a Democrat. It takes a Democrat to kill welfare. It takes a Democrat. <laughs> <laughs> because if Republican tries, there'll be opposition. So it takes a Democrat to do some of the most dastardly deeds. <laughs> That's right. Brianna Joy Gray, thank you so much for appearing on the show. And uh, I do hope it's the beginning of a long conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. <laughs>